You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode number 54, Dance with the Devil, the Cozy Powell Story with Laura Shenton. And coming to you from the breezy and windy suburbs of the Windy City, I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry. And coming to you from Providence, Rhode Island, this is your co-host, John Pizza Shells Matola. <laughs> Pizza shells. <laughs> I think I know the story behind that one. Tell us about the pizza shells. Um, because, <laughs> because I was doing some shopping for my aunt yesterday who can't leave the house. And the one thing that she asked for, pizza shells, I forgot at the damn store. I bought everything else. Yep. So, and I couldn't think of another nickname today. Pizza shells. I like pizza <laughs> shells. You know, we, yeah, we pizza, got pizza we're, crust. We're getting ready to do the, the show and we've got this like giant, you know, wind. I've never seen this warning before on weather.com. It's like, oh you will God. lose power. And it shows like the whole nation looks like it's on fire. And there's these two giant wind gusts, one right over Chicago and one right over Providence. And it's like, you're going to lose power. <laughs> and I'm like, this doesn't look like it's going to be very good for the show. But it's the it's the next morning. The sun's shining. It's beautiful out. Um, yeah, it wound up being fine because like... um. Uh, even even my ride home, I thought it was going to be one of those days where it was, you know, so windy that my car was going to blow off the road because I have like <laughs> I have a compact which does not do well in the wind or the snow. And um, it actually wasn't that bad, um, like at all. I mean, I've um, so it was I was grateful for that because obviously, like, you know, one of the nights we we're going to record, I'm like, of course, of course, it's predicted there's going to be like widespread power outages. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I, I have this this bridge that I go over on the on the way to work. It's a long bridge mm -hmm. on the highway, and it's it, it's like over this valley and this canal, and that's always where the wind gusts feel like they're going to blow you right over the bridge. And oh, um, right. and yeah, I've had way worse days on that bridge than than yesterday that were completely unannounced. So I'm glad. So I'm luckily, luckily glad it didn't pan wrong. out. Yeah. <laughs> We're still here. We have power. That's good. Um, so if you want to keep up to date on this show, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All that information is at deeppurplepodcast.com, including the show notes for this episode. Um, if you want to help support the show, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, why don't you? And... Um, if you want to help support the show, become a patron on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. One measly dollar. You can help support the show and help us um, uh, fund new episodes and new books, uh, and new things to review, albums to review. Um, coming in at, with our patrons at the Turn It Up to $11 tier, Ryan M. At the $10 Super Champion tier, we have Steve Seaborg of NameOnAnything.com and AllTheWorldsOfStage.net. At the $5 tier, we have Clay Wambacher, Greg Sealby, Frank Tealgard Mortensen, and Mike Knowles. At the $3 tier, Peter Gardot, Ian DeRosier, Mark Roback, and Anton Glaving. And at the $1 made-up name tier, Els Murders, Spacey Noodles, The Spooky Leaky Mausoleum, and Michael Vader. The Force is with you. 
Uh, thank you to all of you for all of your um, generous support. You can also do one-time or recurring donations on PayPal if you want to be listed amongst this hall of heroes, but don't like Patreon for whatever reason. Um, thanks to our brothers at the Deep Dive Podcast Network, Riot Sabbath Bloody Podcast, The Simple Man at Skinner Reconsidered, and Terry T-Bone Mathley at T-Bone's Prime Cuts. We thank you for your support. And of course, Jorg Planer, the patron saint of the Deep Purple Podcast. Thank you for your help. All right, so this week, we're doing week, right? Yeah, we do this weekly. Okay. Um, this week, I was like, this day, this week, how often do we do uh, this? Well, one day just runs into the next at this point. <laughs> yeah. Who even knows what it is right now. Uh, so we, uh, we have a guest on our show this week to talk about um, her book, Dance with the Devil, the Cozy Powell story. And um, Laura is going to be joining us to talk about her book. I'm super excited. Just finished reading it yesterday after a lengthy uh, attempt to get my hands on a copy. Um, and yeah, we'll be going to our interview with Laura. All right, so we got something special for you this week. We've got an interview with Laura Shenton, who has just wrote this wonderful book, Dancing with the Devil, the Cozy Powell story, which I just finished yesterday. Just hit my deadline. So, um, but excellent book. Lots of great stories, quotes about Cozy Powell. Learned a ton. And uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. That's okay. Thank you. So, uh, start off by telling us a little bit about, well, first of all, how is it possible that you've written the first biography on Cozy Powell? Well, it blows my mind, actually, because... Um, I've always been a massive Rainbow fan and I thought in terms of what many people consider to be the definitive lineup, there's already a biography on Richie Blackmore, there's already one on Ronnie Dio and I've, I've thought for a long time, I thought, can't believe there's not one on Cozy Powell, can't believe it and I looked it up and I think I think there's one that's been done in Japanese language mm. and there's, there's obviously various magazines and fanzines but in terms of a biography... There, there wasn't one. So I thought, well, I'd like to read one. Nobody's done it yet. I'll do it. <laughs> and it's not the definitive biography. I think it's really important that I stipulate that. Um, you know, it's not about his personal life. And, and I, I was very deliberate in, in avoiding that because it's not, that's not my story to tell. So um, the title is very much, um, it's the Cozy Powell story rather than the Cozy Powell biography. Because if there's anybody out there who did know him personally, and they, you know, and there's something to put out there in terms of that side of his life, somebody else should definitely write that book. But in terms of the music, I thought, right, this is a story that needs to be told. No one's done it yet. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so that's <laughs> kind of how and why it came about, really. That's awesome. You know, it just occurred to me, somebody that follows us on Twitter is a, their, their profile picture is a picture of Cozy Powell's head and all their tweets are in Japanese. I wonder if that's the person that wrote the book. Oh, but cool. <laughs> I don't I don't understand, obviously, any of the tweets, so I don't know. Uh, but every so often they'll retweet something that we do or 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 post something. And, um, and but I never really know what's going on. So that's interesting. <laughs> that's only the Japanese version. <laughs> Um, you know, there's a lot of really good um, Japanese books generally about um, all of the music you, you guys cover, like Deep Purple, Rainbow, White Snake. There, there's a lot, like the, the sheet music printed um, in Japan for Japanese audiences, um, the vintage stuff. It's really, it's, as well as like band scores, it's got um, like 
reams and reams of text about the band, but I ain't got a Scooby-Doo what it's on about, because like you say, <laughs> all of that's in Japanese as well. I've seen some of those books before, and it kills me because I look at these, and then they're like, oh my God, this book about Deep Purple, I've never seen this one before. And you're like, oh, it's all in Japanese. Um, <laughs> I've considered buying some of them just for the pictures, but... Um, I've come across quite a few, so that 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 brings up an interesting point talking about sheet music because you you're you have a background in music, correct? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, um, I mean, I've um, I've studied it. I've done a master's degree in it, but I'm not I'm not active in that side of it anymore because um, I don't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I, I, I prefer to just like kind of um, listen to it and geek out on it. Um, but it it kind of helps um, in like from a research perspective in terms of ensuring that I'm being accurate, objective, you know, that, that my sources corroborate um, effectively. And um, it kind of helps in terms of um, just, again, yeah, just corroborating stuff from a musical perspective. So um, if, uh, if someone were to say, for example, oh, there's a cowbell here or there's a, a whatever chord there, yeah, sometimes that helps because I can think, yep, there sure is or isn't <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so it kind of helps in that regard. Yeah, that's great. And in some ways, you're, you're probably better able to describe it than Cozy, because as you say in the book, he never really had any formal training. He never seemed to practice. He didn't really understand the theory behind music. Yeah, he's a much better drummer than I'd ever be. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's um, the flip side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's testament to their genius. I mean, it's kind of the same as Blackmore, isn't it? They they both, I mean, not at the same time. They didn't meet till later, as far as I'm aware, but... Um, you know, they both started out in Germany um, in the late 60s and just doing all the groundwork. Like, they weren't like me with their head in a book when they were like 21. They, they were out there going and doing it, you know, and that's fantastic. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it, how like there's um, there's so many like avenues within the study of music you know some people want to study the nuts out of it and go oh this chord was here and oh they played that drum on that record and other people are just like it's a good sound I'm going out and playing it what else yeah. <laughs> so you get like a lot of variety mm-hmm. in terms of the angles that that people can bring to the literature yeah I find it fascinating like um I I love to read what other people say about this music because everybody brings something different to the table I love that yeah, and he even says in the uh, one of your quotes in the book says that he felt like drum lessons could be detrimental, like they they'd somehow make him worse or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's true though. I mean, I I think Blackmore said something similar in in guitar in August nineteen seventy four. He said, "Oh my God, I'm such a nerd." He didn't say that. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> he said um, it was something to the effect of like if you if you study something like. Um, if you study something to the point where it becomes monotonous or, um, you know, you're like, it just, it kind of kills it in a way. It kind of kills that passion. And I think that that's very true in a lot of um, music communities. Even today, you know, you get the people who are living it and breathing it and doing it. And they don't necessarily want to study it in, in such a detail that it becomes, it almost kills the magic, you know, so... But but having said that, I, I think Cozy Powell was very um, prolific in terms of advocating for, you know, the, the technical aspect of playing the drums. I mean, um, he did a lot of um, workshops towards the later end of his career. I think, in fact, there's some of those on YouTube. And um, he was, I think, in terms of teaching, I mean, when he went on, um, oh, I can't, remember, I can't remember the name of the program now, but it was a kids show. Um, I mentioned it in the book. 
um, it might have been Tears Wars or some, something like that, or Cracker Jack, some, something cheesy. And um, he, there was this kid who won a prize. I think he won a drum lesson and a ticket to see Rainbow. This was in like 1979. I was like, oh, oh wow. you lucky bugger. <laughs> so he, he might not have had... Um, you know, Powell himself, um, he, he often advocated for the fact that he hadn't had um, academic training in, in the drums. But I, I imagine what he's done and what he put out there has inspired a lot of people in their playing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I wish I could win a ticket to see Rainbow in 1979. Oh, me too. Where's the time machine? <laughs> That'd be brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminded me of, of, of like a similar, I don't know if you want to call it a phobia or whatever that Paul McCartney had where he didn't, he, he doesn't know how to read sheet music and he also like didn't want to learn how to do it because I mean obviously by the time that became an issue he'd already been in the Beatles and had a solo career so like if you're Paul McCartney at that point why would you need to go back and learn how to read sheet music how is that going to improve your <laughs> he'd already yeah, yeah. he'd already written more you know number one hits than most uh, so it's, it's interesting you got these like these legendary people that might not understand the technical end of it but like you said it shows you it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter yeah yeah and in the book I mentioned about um, there was an interview where Powell said he um, in the days when he was a session musician, he um, he had a bit of a technique for sort of getting around the fact that he couldn't or wouldn't um, read sheet music. He'd, he'd sort of pretend there was a technical problem with the drums or the microphone, just just anything to play for time a bit, so that he could actually like really look at the music and you know work out what was on paper. But I think in many cases he said. Um, he, he kind of went with the feel and put his own kind of spin on things, not not to a point where it overshadowed the other artists, but um, it it was a clever way of sort of getting around that. But I think that that probably helped him as an artist, you know, to, to reach that point where I, I imagine has he got a better rapport with the people he worked with, for example, Mickey Most, I'd, I'd imagine he was in a situation where people knew his style and it was like, take it or leave it. And there was an interview where he did actually stipulate that. He said something along the lines of, you know, if you don't want, you know, if you're looking for X and I'm Y, go and find Y to go and play on your, your mm. um, music. So yeah, no, I, I think he was quite pragmatic about it. I, I get the sense anyway. Great. Well, you were kind enough to send along your top five cozy picks, your top five um, cozy songs. So we're going to kind of go through these in between the questions. Our first first pick in coming up in the number five slot, we'll leave some tension there to see what, what comes in number one. But number five here is uh, theme one. And this is from this is from the Over the Top album, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, first solo album that he did. Yeah, so the, and this track feature is Bernie Marsden. Jack Do you Bruce. Know, my mind's gone my mind's gone blank as to the lineup. <laughs> because the whole album, um, I mean definitely look this up. The whole album he he used a range of musicians, so there's actually different musicians on different tracks. Um I can tell you that um the synth, that's Don Airy, um, which makes sense because um that album was made, I think it was slightly after or slightly between um Rainbows Down to Earth tour um obviously um you know that was when cozy was reaching the point at which he was going to call it a day with rainbow um but yeah no this album's really good um and i love i love the opening track. yeah the opening track also features bernie marsden on the on this track which is you know one of our uh one of our go-to's or one of our favorite uh 
White Snake members. Oh, I want to mine. I don't want to speak for John. But. <laughs> I, love, I love Bernie Marsden. This um, this single was actually released on a, on a med record, like med vinyl. Oh, okay. I'm one of those people when I listen to music, I just get dead distracted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, sometimes we do that when we we uh, we rate tracks is like we we won't talk over them because we're so interested in what's going on or it's so good. And then we're like, we should probably talk. Otherwise, we're just going to be listening to the song. <laughs> no, it works for me. It's a bloody good one. <laughs> some great yeah. thundering drums there. Well, we can we can also we only have to play some snippets, too, if we want to. But um so yeah, that's a, I mean, great track. And I wasn't really familiar with this album before you brought it up. So I've checked mm -hmm. out a little bit of it. And it's really cool. Um, uh, I, I really like the feel of it. It's got that. So this must, it must have been early 80s, right? That this album came out. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, as I say, it was sort of like post or just coming towards the end of um, his time with Rainbow. Oh, 79 um, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was going to yeah. say, it sounds oh. late 70s. And John, who do you think produced it? Roger Glover? Close. Oh. Uh, Martin Birch. There you go. Hey, only took me two. <laughs> and you know, it's like li li listening to the album. I was wondering, I, I I didn't really, obviously didn't do any research on it, but but um, listening to it, it felt, it just felt very familiar to me. It sounded familiar and it's, you know, we've just covered Roger Glover's elements and we've covered, you know, some of those other things. And we, we hear this, this, this typical, Martin Birch sound. Mm, it's um, it's well done, isn't it? It sort of brings out everybody's talents, even though it's Cozy's um, solo album. It's it kind of, you know, shows everyone in a good light. And um, I, I think it's distinctively a Cozy track because it's um, it's like a reprise of the um, Dance with the Devil um, drum beat. That's oh, very cool. So we were talking about how this um, this um, this album came at the the and I was around the end of his time with Rainbow. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you think that Cozy lasted as long as he did with um, working with Richie in Rainbow? There's loads of that in the book. And, you know, I find it so fascinating because um, the rapport they had, I mean, there's also a lot about that in, in Colin Hart's book. Um, it's just really fascinating. Like their sense of humour probably got them through. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of instances where they, um, where Cozy Powell said himself that, you know, their, their sense of humour, his and Richie's, was so warped and weird that it probably made things less boring at a time where they could have been. Um, you know, I mean, people in that industry, they're probably so sheltered from day to day life. Um, perhaps it's like being in the big brother house or something when you're working on an album, like it's just people <laughs> bored indoors. Well, bored indoors like now a little bit, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, but yeah, no, it was, um, being in rainbow was like five years of, um, Cozy's career and um, it would have been so easy to sort of just fall into the, the trap of making the whole book about Rainbow and I thought oh I don't want to do that um, but when I wrote the book that was that was one of the first chapters I wrote because I knew what I wanted to say um, but yeah it's such a good band isn't it um, and 
when Powell left, I mean, he was candid about it. He he left because he was um, dissatisfied about the, the um, direction that Rainbow was going at the time. So with the Down to Earth album, you've got tracks like um, All Night Long, Since You've Been Gone. Um, it's it's commercial and Cozy was quite um, clear in a number of interviews that that wasn't the direction in which he wanted to go, which is a shame really, because I, I think what he achieved with Rainbow was amazing. Um, mm. But it was, I guess it was one of those things where it was of its time, you know, Powell wanted to do something heavy. I mean, even in his earlier work, he was heavy with Bedlam. I mean, that's a brilliant album. Give, give that a listen. Um, but he wasn't only a heavy drummer. I mean, when he worked with like um, ELP, he was doing very different stuff. So I, I think he was versatile and I can't remember your question, but yeah. yeah. That's that's usually yeah. how it goes. <laughs> that, yeah, that seems to be a, a common theme when when we when we talk about our rainbow is people leaving because they didn't like the direction they were going in because that's um you know, because uh, uh getting too commercial I think was a lot of it. What, wasn't it Nate or was that um yeah, I mean, and Rainbow or does even throughout Deep Purple too. Just a lot of like, oh, it's getting too commercial, or it's not enough this, or it's too much that. And Richie was trying to take it more commercial. When you look at the direction the band goes, it really is kind of a if if you were if you had started in Rainbow and the early Dio years and and thinking like this is the the tone we're setting, and then all of a sudden you're you're edging towards the Joe Lynn Turner era. There's it's such a wild shift. And it's amazing that it's even the same band. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a very sort of human thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure we've all been in that situation where you start a job and you think, okay, here's the remit, here's what we're doing. And then when someone at the top says, oh, we're changing it now, you'd be like, nah, I'm out. (laughs) You (laughs) know, this is a thing to do, isn't it? Um, But yeah, no, I I mean, personally, I think every every version of Rainbow is fantastic. I mean, also the fact that, um, again, this is mentioned quite a bit in Colin Hart's book and um, Jerry Bloom's book about Blackmore. Um, It is the case that Blackmore was funding Rainbow himself. So whether or not going commercial was like a, a heartfelt decision or a a money-based one, I don't know. Um, you know, you, I kind of think, well, it was his band, he was paying for it, why not? Sure. <laughs> um, but it certainly did change, didn't it? It changed to the sound of it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So you had mentioned um, about um, Cozy being a, like, a, like a hard rock or a, a heavy drummer. Um, and these days it's, um, it's really common to find, um, you know, hard rock and metal bands that have drummers that use double bass. And, um, Cozy was, uh, one of the first people, uh, to do that as, as far back as the late sixties. Um, so do you think that he's, um, mainly responsible for this, uh, this kind of influence on, uh, drummers in, in, uh, bands since then that use double bass in hard rock and metal bands? Yeah, massively. He was one of the first people to do that. And it's such a good thing to do technically and artistically because it, um, and I've gone into detail about this in the book, but it, it empowers the uh, the musician on, on several levels. It means like they're able to go a lot faster because um, they can use both their feet at the same time. And of course they get a lot more power as well, but it's accurate because they're not having to I could describe it better if, if you could film my feet. <laughs> but, um, <it's, laughs> just we'll put a webcam on just your feet. We'll just have just your feet on the show. 
but yeah, it's um, it's it's such it's really innovative because um, because I can understand why a lot of people might look at it and go, oh, you just did it for show. But as he said himself, no, no, it it actually does enable me to do a lot more than I'd I'd otherwise be able to. Yeah, when I remember seeing in the book that he was using it, and I mean, I always knew, you know, the Cozy Powell drum set with the Cozy and the Powell and the drums, and uh, but I never, I didn't realize it was as early as 1967 that he was doing that. Um, and I, I remember when Ian Pace did it for Fireball, they made a big production out of it. They'd bring out a second bass drum and set it up just for the one song. And it was, you know, but that was pretty much it. The only time he really used it. And I, I think I think it's mentioned, I think we talked about it in our Fireball episode. I think when they, it was, when they recorded the song, he had to like go and borrow Keith Moon's drum set <laughs> or, or, yeah. or, or his kick drum just to, to record it uh, so it was like it wasn't something somebody usually had handy as a part of their kit so it's amazing that he sort of pioneered that mm, definitely and it's mind-blowing because like we can look back at it with hindsight and think well of course why why wouldn't you but I suppose at the time a lot of thought went into it and it I find that fascinating you know because in terms of what it enabled him to do I mean especially um in the live shows with the with the um 1812 overture mm-hmm. that's that's incredible that's awesome so we got a uh, your number four pick on your on your list of top five cozy tracks is uh fits in perfectly with what we we're just uh talking about it's lost in Hollywood talk about awesome. a great cozy song Yeah, I love this song, too. Love it. Awesome song. It's funny we talk talking about being commercial. This is like this is as hard rocking as anything you'd hear on the the first three albums. Yeah, absolutely. You took the words right out of my mouth. It's it's so true because you know, Powell was cheesed off, apparently, with the direction Rainbow was going in at this time. And you listen to Lost in Hollywood and you think, well, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a lot of pop stuff on here, but there's also a lot of heavy stuff on here, too. Mm, it's a good album. I think it's a good mix. I mean, some people say because a lot of the songs on Down to Earth, they're, they're shorter than on, say, Rainbow Rising, but it doesn't make them any less good. Yeah, and the song still, I mean, it's at almost at almost five minutes. I mean, it's a, it's not unless it gets trimmed down, it's still probably not going to get a ton of radio play. Um, but yeah. it's got a great drive to it. And when you think about, you know, the year that it came out, was it 79, right? 79, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you weren't hearing a lot of music like this. This is, but this this you would be hearing three, four years later. It sounds, it sounds almost like early Iron Maiden or something to me. It's... Yeah, it's got that drive it's to still, it. It still manages to kind of stay loyal to um, what Blackmore was doing with Early Rainbow. I mean, there's um, I there's a part in um, Lost in Hollywood. It still uses a bark chord progression, um, mm-hmm. and it's not that far removed from from what he was doing in the earlier Rainbow days. I think a lot of it has to do too with like um, with production as well, and. Um, um, and uh, just uh, the musicians that you're working with, because it's um, 
you know, yeah, it's a little it's a little poppy or it's not the same as early Rainbow. But I mean, I think that that's what makes some of these albums so good is, is that it's not the same exact thing over and over and over again. But you still have that common thread running through, like you said, the kind of classical um, influence that, you know, Richie brought and everything. So. I mean, it kind of seems like Cozy and Richie were similar in the fact that neither of them were ever satisfied and always looking for something new and some sort of change. And and it's it's amazing that the two of them lasted together as long as they did, because I, I don't know if if uh, it seems like this mu Rainbow must have been one of Cozy's longest, if not his lo longest tenure in any band. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was five years. And it it's really fascinating because with White Snake, he only did one album um so in both cases he was working with you know mega stars you know blackmore and um coverdale and with rainbow he lasted five years with white snake it was only the one album and um i guess it could have gone either way in in either instance but i know that um cozy powell remained um friends with blackmore um i don't know if they stayed in touch after like directly after um powell left rainbow but um they they were um in the same hotel um, in, when was it, mid to late 97, because um, there, there's an interview of Powell in more black than purple fanzine. Um, that was in 97. Um, mm -hmm. So they must have had a rapport, Blackmore and Powell, that, um, that was healthy and happy, I guess. Well, it seems like one thing they shared was this common... Uh, uh, love for doing incredibly dangerous and nasty pranks <laughs> mostly yeah. on poor Tony Carey <laughs> yeah do you know it was really weird writing the book in that regard because I'm I'm massively anti-bullying I'm, I'm a bit of a, an activist in that regard and I was writing this stuff and I was sort of giggling to myself and I was like don't laugh at that that's yeah. bullying that's really mean <laughs> but, <laughs> but it must have been funny at the time and I, I just as I said in the book I said I'm not the referee you know I wasn't there um but um it's like it's weird because because when I was writing the book, I thought, right, I don't want to advocate for anyone or put words in their mouth um, because it's not my place to do that. And I thought, right, I'm going to have to describe this in a way that, well, I'm not sort of saying somebody liked somebody or somebody didn't like somebody. So I tried mm -hmm. super hard, and I think I managed um, to, you know, not sort of portray any kind of bitchiness or friendship either way because I deliberately didn't interview anybody for the book and I know that sounds really weird but mm -hmm. the reason I didn't is because I thought oh pick up sorry um, I thought to myself I thought you know Powell's been gone since you know late 90s and I thought who am I to suddenly go and ask loads of people what did you think of him what was it like working with him because whilst I know that would be interesting to people I thought well the man himself has been gone for, for that long now. No matter what comes up in anybody else's opinion of him, he's not in a position to, to kind of answer that. And I thought, I don't think that's fair. I thought, I want to write a book that concentrates on the legacy. So everything in the book said by others was pretty much answered by Powell in other interviews. And I thought, that's a fairer way of doing it. I thought, let's write something where... He's already put out there what he wants to in interviews. I thought, you know, because I didn't want to run into that dangerous territory of coming across that I was speaking for people. I, I didn't want to do that, you know. Sure. 
Yeah, and it, it's yeah, it's interesting you bring up the uh, the bullying things. I'm I I don't like pranks. I'm not a prankster. I don't I I think pranks are mostly just mean. But but it does. It's this thing that comes up and we've had to talk about on the show. And and the pranks that get mentioned don't sound like pranks to me. That like the the one that we brought up on. I forget which episode it was or which album they were recording. But Richie Blackmore kicks in Roger Glover's door with an axe and then he has, runs in with an axe. And I'm yeah. like, how is that a prank? Let's <laughs> just. <laughs> I mean, yeah, psychotic. Yeah. to me, a prank is like, you know, uh, I don't know, a whoopee cushion or, a f- or like putting like a fake mouse, like a little motorized mouse in somebody's room, not like th- <laughs> like feel- making them feel like they're going to be killed. Like the, not exactly not exactly hilarious yeah. stuff. But uh, I mean, you know, diff- it's, it's, it's so mind blowing because it's like there's such a fine line between what's hilarious and what's absolutely stupid um, it happens a lot with like a lot of slapstick comedy like right. you watch it and you think oh that's hilarious somebody's fell over a little bit but if it was you you'd be right annoyed exactly. <laughs> you know and it's almost like you're laughing at relief and, and disbelief like you're thinking did that really happen it's it's weird isn't it yeah, I think Kurt Vonnegut had that in one of his books about ta- talking about that phenomenon he, he, he talks about the funniest thing that he ever saw was he went to a I forgot what book it was, but he says he walked up to the corner for the bus and the bus door opened and a woman just came out sideways, like like head first. And <laughs> he's, and he said it's like the funniest thing he's ever seen. And but he's like he knows it's wrong and he felt bad. But like it was just one of those yeah. things. I guess it's how you uh, cope with certain things as a human. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Like the things that actually make people laugh. Because like the axe in the door um, scenario. Like if we were a fly on the wall, we'd probably watch it and find it hilarious. <laughs> yes. But to be in Roger's position, it'd be like you'd be livid, wouldn't you? you oh. <laughs> oh, it, which makes it funnier. It's it's really trippy, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would not be pleased with that prank. <laughs> Just <laughs> even being woken up is bad enough. Never mind by somebody kicking in my door with an axe. Oh yeah, so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so you you also mentioned in the book that you you think that uh, Cozy's influence is kind of why White Snake took the direction. You hint at it at least. The, it's the reason White Snake took the direction it did, it, from being like more of a blues rock band to being more, for lack of a better word, metal and going into that direction. How much of an influence do you think he did have on the, on White Snake at that period? Wow, that's a really fascinating question because. Um, he said in a number of interviews that when he was with Whitesnake, um, he uh, he had to reduce the complexity of his playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that meant for Whitesnake in the long term, I'm not sure. I mean, I think 1984, that the year that he was with uh, Whitesnake and doing the Slider In album, um, I think the personnel problems in Whitesnake were such that I would imagine it was almost a catalyst for change anyway um whether or not powell might have been in the picture hmm interesting um but yeah it's uh but they i did so did they start off with him doing his his drum solo in in white snake and then cut it out or was it cut out at the beginning do you do you know how that went um in the live um in live or studio uh live oh right live yeah i think i think it was the case that he said, Powell said in an interview, he wasn't, I don't think he was given the same sort of scope and freedom with Whitesnake that he had with Rainbow. Probably was a creatively frustrating time for him. But having said that, he was professional. He, he was used to playing with different bands and different styles and sort of adhering to what they wanted. Um, 
So so it could have gone either way, really. I, I think he was a team player, but um, there's also a sense that he was kind of, he had a life outside of that, um, hence the racing. Mm-hmm. I mean, every every time he left a band, he'd he'd often say in interviews, "Oh, I can always go back to racing." He never did. <laughs> um, sort of, you know, when before Rainbow, he he was very proactive with racing, but then Blackmore got in touch with him to to do that, and um, thereafter, I think the racing pretty much took a back seat for the rest of his career. Um, but I imagine it would have been nice for him to say, "Oh, well, I've got other things to do if I want to." That must be pretty empowering. Sure. Yeah. So you, um, well, coming in, speaking of uh, drum solos here, we're coming in at your number three pick is the 1812 Overture, which is really interesting where um, he, you know, we we talk about drum solos a lot on the show and how neither of us are a drummer. So we like watching drum solos, but like listening to them, maybe not. Drum solos usually don't get a great rap from, (laughs) even from the biggest of fans. Um, But I think Cozy did something really special with this drum solo and bringing in actual music and theatrics into it rather than just doing a bunch of paradiddles or whatever. Um, So here we go. I've got this one. I I don't know. This is live in Germany in 1983. It says 633 Squadron. Does that mean anything to you? Yeah, yeah. So that won't be the, um, the overture. That'll be a different piece. Play it anyway, though. It'll be good. Well, it says it is. Well, I, from what I've listened to, it is. So we've got John Lord here. Ah. Introduce. I don't know if you can see the video, but he's pointing over to. Yeah. Cozy. So, so at first I thought that was White Snake, but this would be too early for White Snake, wouldn't it? Good old uh, YouTube always buggers its days up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you never know what you're what you're looking. I'm sure there's some fans looking at this, being like, "You dummies, this is from whatever." You you can't see it, so you wouldn't know. But um, but yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing that he did, and he 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 plays this kind of accompanied drum solo and makes it into this really theatric event. And it reminds me of when we were kids. Actually, John's father would always get out his record player, and on the Fourth of July and play the 1812 overture on these giant speakers out the window for everyone else. <laughs> but awesome. as, I think they're just setting off fireworks though. But um, yeah, so this is, can't really hear anything yet, but this is cozy warming up. You see this huge crowd and John Lord's there. So maybe this is White Snake. Maybe this is some, some other project. Yeah, I think that's plausible. Gonna get started here. Here we go. Brilliant. <laughs> and you mentioned in the book, too, that when he was in ELP, you know, he normally would play this to a um, tape loop. But when he was in ELP, uh, Keith Emerson was like, oh, I'll just learn. I'll just learn the music. And he just learned it in like five minutes. And then he would accompany him, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all because Emerson's propensity to learn classical music so quickly and to play it so well, I mean, it's like, why not? Why not utilize that for for the live performance? Of course. Yeah, I think Cozy stumbled onto something. I think this is how you do a drum solo and keep the audience's attention because this is visually and... uh, just audibly very uh, it keeps your it holds your interest very well mm. 
Give you've... people something melodic and I think they engage with it a lot more, which is sad in terms of drumming itself, but, but if that's what it took, power to him. Well, I think a lot of drum solos are very formulaic too and they just kind of do the same little show-offy kind of bits and it's, it, it's, it's hard because there's nothing really to do melodically unless you've got some sort of a per other percussive instruments there. Yeah, I think that's what's really impressive about his single Dance with the Devil because um, it's, it's it wasn't common then and it isn't common now, in fact, for a drummer to have a single and to maintain audience attention like that. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, with that song, it's almost like it reminds me sort of like like Whiplash or something where it's like, or I'm not Wipeout, I don't know if I said Whiplash. Uh, um, <laughs> it's early here. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of like Wipeout, like like how many songs can you name that are like hit singles that the focus is on the drums, at least from that era? Yeah. I'm racking my brains. <laughs> there must be a few, but um, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's interesting that no other drummers have really. Well, I shouldn't say no other because my knowledge is very limited, but I, I, I'm not familiar with many other drummers doing a performance like this. It's very unique. Mm. Can't beat it, really. I mean, it's it's interesting to watch. It's interesting to listen to. It's innovative, isn't it? It's It's just damn good drumming. And then you've got fireworks going on and every other thing. That's great. Wow, very cool. I'd imagine that this was in the days before um, they had to put disclaimers on um, all the paperwork for these shows. You know, anyone of a nervous disposition shouldn't be here. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And then going into more of a standard drum solo here. Look at those gigantic dents in his tom heads. <laughs> There's, I mean, just, it looks like somebody yeah. shot like a golf balls at them with those big <laughs> twigs that he's using there. And you talk about that constantly in the book, just about the power of his playing and how hard he hit the drums. And <laughs> you can see it by mm -hmm. as evidenced on his drum heads there. Yeah, he wasn't afraid to um, experiment. I mean, there there were occasions where he, he turned the sticks round in order to, you know, <laughs> use use the, the bigger end of them. And also wow. um, when he went into the studio with... Um, Emerson and Lake, um, he'd actually forgot his drumsticks, so they went outside and got some sticks, <laughs> like actual sticks to, to play with. And you mentioned you mentioned also in the book about when he was in uh, in school, he broke too many drums, so they put him on cymbals because they were harder to break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think every musician should break an instrument at some point. Definitely. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Not, yeah. People like Richie do it on purpose, but. Um, <laughs> Some people just do it do it through the through the vigor of their playing. Yeah. 
I never really broke an instrument until I had kids and they've broken a few of mine. <laughs> Have they? What did they break? Oh, they snapped off one of the tuners on one of my acoustics and they put a big dent in my trombone. They're, they're just, they're just disasters. They're... Oh, wow. <laughs> they sound like really heavy metal. Cool kids. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> heavy metal trombone. <laughs> my trombone's kind of dented. Luckily, it doesn't really affect the sound. I can't play it anyway, so who cares? <laughs> Here we go. Well, yeah, this is a good, um, a good performance. I got. I'm sure our astute listeners will clue us in as to what we're missing about exactly which era this is. But I don't mm -hmm. know if he was in White Snake that early, so. I mean, maybe you was. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's most plausible. It's, yeah, it You've seems... got the overture now. Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. Lord would have been out in about a year after that, so it, it's got to be. It's just got to be White Snake. Mm. Mm -hmm. This is the thing, though. There's so many recordings um, because Cozy was so prolific. Um, there's so many out there that he even he doesn't know what he was on. That's the truth of the matter. I mean, there's an interview where he said, um, and this is all in the book, he did play with Stevie Wonder in the studio. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that version ended up on record, he doesn't know. Yep. So if he didn't know, <laughs> good luck to the rest of us. And that's how prolific he was. Yeah, I mean, these, these, some of these great musicians are doing five sessions a week or more. So, like, I mean, I know in Richie's early days, he he, he was on, I don't know, 40 or 50 singles or something before Deep Purple even got together. He was, he was, always, he was the go-to guy, you know? Mm. And it's good because, um, you know, on the one hand, it's just proper frustrating that as fans, we'll never know the entire discography. It's impossible because session musicians weren't credited around that time. Um, but it, it's certainly testament to the extent that they, they built their skills up um, prior to, to becoming more high profile. Wow. That's quite a final. Uh, the finale of that um, looks like it basically looks like Cozy himself exploded. <laughs> It's just because they wow. set, they set up three giant flares in front of his drum set, so it just looks like he explodes. Wow. So you talk. Speaking of his time in in White Snake, you talk about in the book about him uh, doing this commando course with Coverdale. Was this some sort of like weird bonding ritual, or what? What was that all about? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, um, in a number of interviews, Powell said about all of the stuff he did to keep fit like sort of boxing and apparently um the um expedition thing that they went on was coverdale wasn't a fan of it apparently <laughs> i don't really know why they did it but um powell goes into a lot of detail about it so um it you know the the, the event itself so it, it could have been like one of those um sort of what do they call it where, where you go to work and they make you go on a trip that nobody wants to do oh, team like building. a team build yeah <laughs> those things, yeah oh yeah did trust falls and <laughs> <laughs> yeah I can't uh, so and yeah so Coverdale was not the uh, was not the the greatest outdoorsman no apparently not <laughs> not that hard to believe <laughs> he went from oh, being a, being a you know working in a clothing store to being in one of the biggest bands in the world when would he have had time to to learn although interestingly yeah. uh, I, I think we mentioned in our 
Coverdale episode when he first joined that he uh, he didn't have uh, like a proper headshot. So I think he mentioned that he brought like a picture of himself in his Boy Scout uniform, like from his <laughs> mother's house. <laughs> Oh yeah. Do you know, um, I imagine you've covered it already, but the story of how he came to be in Deep Purple is incredible, isn't it? Because it, mm-hmm. it was very humble. It was very much a case of sending a cassette and see what happens. Like, I mean, with a voice like that, though, it's, it's not surprising, is it? I mean, wow. Yeah, we always kind of suspect that if, if it hadn't worked out in, in with Deep Purple, that just given his voice and the the charisma that he naturally has, he would have been successful in some way doing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been a tragedy if not. Absolutely. I can't imagine. We, we don't like to think about a world without Coverdale in it. Not at all. <laughs> so, um, so speaking of Whitesnake and Coverdale, um, what do you think of the main factors in um, Cozy leaving Whitesnake? Wow. Well, I say it's an in, that's an interesting question because there's different sources on that um, from Powell himself um, in terms of the interviews he gave. Um, there was somewhere, you know, it's, it's all a bit spinal tap really, isn't it? That, you know, <laughs> that some of the interviews were in the lexicon of, oh, well, you know, musically we, we'd finished doing what we were doing. Um, there's other interviews that say it was contractual um, disagreements, um, so it's one of those things really where I think unless you were there at the time, you'll never know. Um, but in, in the um, interest of being objective um, in the book, I, I was really um, thorough in sort of being frank about the fact that the answer wasn't clear. It could have been this, it could have been that. Because I'd rather do that than draw a conclusion that's not even true. So um, I think Powell himself offered a range of, um, you know, explanations and it wasn't in a kind of um n- not genuine way he i don't think he was being you know kind of fake in saying why um white snake didn't go ahead with him in it but yeah I, I think it just folded i think it was just such a turbulent time for the band anyway um but then of course i i always think the fact that when powell left the band it just opened the door for another range of opportunities. So perhaps it's not such a bad thing, you know, do your best with, with one band and then go off and play with another, you know, it's, it's not a bad way to, to do your career. Really. Awesome. So in your number two pick, the tension is building. What is the number one pick? <laughs> in the number two pick, you bring up Kill the King, this excellent track from mm. Long Live Rock and Roll. Yeah, and I think you've done a great job of not just selecting great songs but selecting songs that really showcase what Cozy's all about and this is one of them definitely this song's got everything technically artistically it's just a damn good song oh absolutely I mean, you can see why people did miss Dio after after he left Rainbow. Oh, absolutely, and I mean, it's Dio is kind of an impossible act to follow, and Mm. I think Rainbow continued to put out really great music. But it, I can completely understand if this is what you signed up for as a as a Rainbow fan. I can understand being disappointed when they wanted to take a different direction. But we've always kind of taken the the 
the t- our take on the show has always been celebrating all the different eras. To, to regardless, I mean, our some of our favorite stuff is the Mark Three and Mark Four Deep Purple stuff, and that's genuinely widely regarded as not being whatever appropriate Deep Purple or not the real, the real Deep Purple. The real Deep Purple. Whoever the people are <laughs> that decide what's real Deep Purple, but I th- I think it showed a great a progression. I mean, if you li- if you listen to like the Beatles. Uh, first album and their last their final album how would you even know that that's the same band and that was what kind of excited me about them is they were always changing and trying different things and it's uh, why why should deep purple or any of these bands be held to a different standard they're they're trying to experiment yeah, and yeah, do absolutely. something new i mean no no artistically nobody's obliged to stand still to humor others and you know why should they i mean bonnet great vocalist Lynn Turner great vocalist I mean I don't think Rainbow suffered from any of those lineups I mean loads of, like you say with the Deep Purple thing loads of people say Mark II was the best and with Rainbow people say the Deer Years were the best but it's like well maybe but best or you know definitive they're, they're such subjective terms or like real <laughs> what's real anyway you know um, I mean I'm, I'm with you there about Mark III and Mark IV Purple I mean Mark II is brilliant but I, I find myself listening to Burn a little bit more than Machine Head. <laughs> you know, it all comes mm-hmm. down to preference, doesn't it, I guess? Yeah, I've always been Absolutely, the same way. There's yeah. some there's something about that era that spoke to me more. I, I, I think it's just the you know, the the additional the the addition of the being a little more vocally harmonizing a little more and stuff, of course, taking nothing away from Gillen, but mm. that always spoke to me as well as just the the experimentation and getting a little bit more outside the box and i think it was normal like i think a lot of bands cranked out similar albums in the very early 70s and then everyone started to get kind of experimental you look at any other bands like black sabbath or whoever they were all all doing more as you got to the approach the mid 70s they were doing different things yeah and i think that's a good thing i mean if everything is it's weird it's a double-edged sword because so many people miss what music was in the 70s or possibly 80s and it's a nostalgia thing but on the other hand you think well if it never moved forward that would just be really weird yeah <laughs> yes mm. oh yeah so um you talk about um, in, in your book, John Lord having this this deep admiration for for Cozy Powell, and they did work together a bit. What what was their relationship like? Um, well, again, it's it's not something I'd want to comment on liberally because obviously neither artists are here now, and um, I've been really stringent with that in the book. But it does come across from interviews where they've sort of spoken about each other as musicians and indeed as friends. It sounds like there was a lot of positive energy um, there, um, and I've I've used so many quotes from both um, where relevant because I thought there will come a time, as you know, with both with the fact that both artists have passed on now there will come a time where this information this kind of legacy is is harder to to sort of trace so um there's loads um from from the men themselves um in the book in in that regard and what you you talk also about dio and powell maybe not having the greatest relationship in rainbow and then kind of almost kind of brushing shoulders again in Black Sabbath later and <laughs> both of them kind of being like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, what was the... How do you feel? I mean, I guess it's kind of the same the same answer to your last question and that you can only speculate, mm-hmm. but um, what, do you, what do you think the animosity may have come from between the two of them? Yeah, well, apparently, um, 
I forget if it was Dio or Powell who said this, but one he said, she said. Um, it was it was one of those things where um, I think I think when Dio left Rainbow, he asked Powell to join him or somebody asked somebody to join or again it all gets very spinal tap and I've, <laughs> I've been super careful to put something out there that isn't true um, but yeah somewhere along the line something got awkward and then again with um, Black Sabbath um, it's that whole because I, I think every musician and it's not even necessarily a bitchy thing right every musician probably has like their dream lineup, their dream team of who they want to work with um, whether that be because of how they got on with them musically or personally. And I think everybody's got that kind of ideal. And when when that falls through, it, I guess it can build sort of an awkwardness as they're going along. But having said that, you know, they I guess they remained as professional as they could in the context. Um, so again, I've included loads of quotes from all parties in the book, just, just to be sort of fair and balanced to everybody, really. Awesome. All right, that leaves us with the... Number one pick. Do you want to tell us what your number one pick is? I, I won't I won't give it away this time. I'll let you reveal it. I reckon everybody will have guessed this because <laughs> it's it's everybody's. It's like the definitive, isn't it? And there's loads on this in the book. Um it's Stargazer from the Rainbow Rising album, and it's just blooming brilliant. I mean, it's it's one of those tracks where it's so good. It kind of doesn't need any explanation. It's just like, well, it's good because it's good, mate. <laughs> but having said that, it's the way it was recorded, and I've I've gone into this loads in the book. Um, they they really um, Powell especially really utilised the space in terms of getting the best sound out of the recording studio, the drums themselves, and it's it's just you know in terms of the recording, it's impressive, but in terms of what was done to get power out of those drums it's incredible it's absolutely incredible um and at the end of a lot of phrases there's a cowbell personally i don't like cowbells but <laughs> the point is that the piece has just got everything and melodically um i hope nobody hates me for saying this but it's it's not the most complex track but it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be um sure. you know in terms of the chord progressions it, it doesn't vary as much as other rainbow tracks but again complex doesn't mean better um so in terms of what powell brought to um stargazer in terms of the drumming it just adds it it drives it you know in in parts where the melody's not that complex doesn't matter it's just a really heavy sort of rocking song and it's it's just brilliant isn't it i've got a um oh, live yeah. the live version from nuremberg here oh, um as we, we've we've covered the um rainbow rising album on one of our uh, who, who knows which episode number it was <laughs> um <laughs> But it, this is definitely a, a, a little bit of a different take on it and in a, a much longer version, too. So I'll just let it play for a little bit before we um, cut out. But um, but yeah, the, the I, I did like a little informal poll of, uh, a couple of weeks ago on, on Twitter expecting to get, um, you know, a few responses. I was like, hey, what's everybody's favorite Dio track when he was with Rainbow? I was just trying to get like a sense for which, of, of which era of all of his eras are their favorite song. And obviously Stargazer came away with it. And I got, you know, it's like 500 replies on Twitter or something. So I was, I was like, whoa, I was, you know, so I start going through it and it's all the, it's all the songs you would expect. And Stargazer obviously was probably the one that was mentioned the most. So then I was like, okay, like of, of 
all the Stargazer versions, what's the best one? And Nurem- <laughs> Nuremberg seemed to be the one that, that captured the most attention um, as one of the, the better live tracks. Um, so Did you include bootlegs? Um... I don't know if anybody meant count of worms if you did. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I some people may have mentioned bootlegs, but I I don't know 100% which which ones everyone was mentioning, but ah. But yeah, Nuremberg is is one of the more popular ones. Um So yeah, so uh, oh. oh, sorry, my <laughs> mic almost fell over. Holy cow. So, um, yeah, no, I have, um, going on to, um, to Cozy's, um, solo success. Um, why do you feel that, um, Cozy had, uh, uh, it seems like he had a lot more success as a, um, as a solo artist than most other modern drummers have. Um, why do you, um, why do you feel that, you know, he was able to have that kind of success? Wow, probably a combination of talent and just playing with many high-profile bands. And, and like you say, it's, it's an incredible achievement because I've said this to people before, it's like that really bad joke when people say, who's the guy that hangs out with the band? Oh, the drummer. And it's so derogatory <laughs> to drummers, it's, it's unbelievable. But there, there is an element of that, I guess, in, in the music community. You know, we, we still live in a world where people, a lot of people probably do think, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter as, as long as there's a drummer, any drummer. Mm-hmm. happy days you know but I, I suppose what Powell did was you know he, he sort of put his own stamp on everything he he did and that that probably really helped him in terms of the the fame and the versatility that he did achieve in his career mm, yeah true see we haven't even had the drums kick in yet so you know this is a this is a live version here jeez <laughs> Uh, it's the anticipation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of like other drummers. I mean, the only one that really springs to mind is like Ringo Starr, who had who's had, you know, a lot of a lot of solo mm. success. But I mean, not taking anything away, away from Ringo, but having been Ringo and in the Beatles, I'm sure I carried him yeah. through a lot of that. <laughs> and the, yeah. the the musicians he was able to play with, obviously. And I say modern drummers because, I mean, you could find examples of, you know, many like historic drummers. But if you think about people from this era, you don't hear about a lot of drummers that have solo albums where you're like, oh, yeah, that drummer had an awesome solo album. Yeah, kind of ended like Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) I mean, yeah, they're famous from a while ago. But in the past, like, you know, say 30 years, you know, who else is there? Yeah, the silence answers the question, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As we try to try to think of it. So, what do you uh, what do you think would have been next for uh, for Cozy if um, if he was still with us? Wow, I mean, most band, most people from that era um, of music, they're still going, aren't they? I mean, mm-hmm. we've been lucky that during the lockdown, you know, Coverdale, Blackmore, they've, they've all put. Um, I think Glenn Hughes did one as well recently. They've all put something out. On online, which has been a morale boost, I think mm, for sure. Um, <laughs> um, I I'd like to think he'd still be making music, but equally, he achieved so much in his career. He, he certainly doesn't owe anybody anything. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because so many people like say, "Oh, 
you know, Mark II, Purple should get back together. But I just think, nah, leave it, <laughs> leave it. They mm-hmm. didn't want to, they don't want to. So I don't know to answer your question. I, I, I think there's so many factors um, in terms of the, the routes that people take in life. I, I wouldn't want to say really. There are the, uh, the drums yeah. kicking in <laughs> after uh, six minutes. <laughs> so, get a little. Oh, it's t- gorgeous, isn't it? Can't beat it. And this is a part of a like a three-volume set of some different shows that were played in in Germany, and pretty incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. This was September twenty-fifth, nineteen seventy-six. Uh, were you guys alive then? What's that? Huh? Were you were you were you guys alive then? I wasn't. Um, one one of us was. I was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I was. I was, was this September '76? I was a newborn. <laughs> oh, wicked! I, was, I, I wasn't there, man. I wasn't there. <laughs> I was. I would have been. I would have been on the scene the following year. <laughs> oh wow! I was well in my past life. I was born in '88. <laughs> well, it's it's great that um, this music continues to inspire new generations. Not that you're exactly a, a separate generation from us, <laughs> essentially the same generation. But um, mm. yeah, I mean, even I, I there's people that follow us on Twitter or Facebook or something that are, you know, in their uh, teens or, or early 20s. And it's great to see. And that would be like those those people are young enough to be my kids. And it's amazing. And, you know, my kids just through osmosis are mildly interested in this kind of music. So, um, it's, Wait, it's, didn't you have uh, one of your kids, uh, singing a deep purple song with you on uh, YouTube? <laughs> I did a week or two ago. I, he's very, he's obsessed with it. the new, uh, the new track, the throw my, throw my bones. He's obsessed with it. He, I, I see him just walking around the house humming it. I don't even know if he's actually heard the actual <laughs> song or if he's just played it on the piano with me. So, um, Oh, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Seriously. But that's, that's the thing about the music, isn't it? It's so damn good. It, it appeals to like all age groups. I mean, as, as I said in the book, um, I was in primary school when Cozy Powell passed away. It's, I, I think it's sure. the sort of music that, that just appeals widely. It does, it doesn't age like the rainbow rising album. In, unless I live in a complete and utter vacuum, I still think it sounds quite fresh. Oh yeah, and if you, you if you look at a at a list of top metal albums from 1980, and you look at a list of top metal albums from last week, it's going to be on the list. It's, it's it it's it's a it's a classic, and it's still fresh to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, um, you also, in addition to writing this great book on Cozy Powell, again, I'm putting it up for the camera now. Uh, Dancing with the Devil: The Cozy Powell Story. It's available where fine books are sold. Um, and I was, I've been talking back and forth with you, Laura, for months now about coming on the show and um, uh, about about my my trials and tribulations of actually just trying to get my hands on this book because, of course, <laughs> we, you know, I ordered it from the U. I think I I pre-ordered it on Amazon and they pushed the date back, so then I then I canceled that and pre-ordered it from 
uh, the 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 UK, and then that got delayed because of the lockdown. And then uh, it's but it's available on Kindle for anyone who wants to get it a little quicker. Um, yeah, the um, the whole systems are kind of down at the moment. The, if you want to get get hold of the mm-hmm. book, um, your best bet at the moment is to get it from Weimar directly. Um, if you want to get hold of the physical book, that is, um, they're they're still shipping out worldwide. Um, that's the publisher. Um, W-Y-M-E-R, Google them. But yeah, in terms of like all other suppliers, oh, it's it's gone a bit bananas. So so the best way to get it outside of Kindle is to go to the Weimar website. Mm-hmm. And then we, we had first started talking because of we, we caught wind of your, your upcoming book on Tommy Bolin, uh, which has unfortunately hit some delays, correct? Yeah, it has. Again, it's 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 all ready to go in production. It's all it's all sort of locked and loaded. It's literally we're just having to wait for the um, the production to start rolling um, because all the channels to to do that with are currently um, paused. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's just a waiting game, but it's all ready to go. Yeah, I can't wait. Can't wait to get my hands on that one for sure. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun, and we're hoping. Uh, Hoping to one day have you back when that book comes out. That would be great. Oh, yeah, it'd be a pleasure. It's been really fun. Talking about music is like one of the best things you can do with your time. So I'm always down for that. <laughs> and what <laughs> else do we have to do right now? <laughs> <laughs> so um, without giving too much away, unless in case you can't talk about it, uh, is there are there any projects you're working on right now? Or if 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 not, is there a dream uh, project you'd be working on or book you'd be working on about somebody? I am working on loads. Do you know, um, I've got so many manuscripts that are just ready to roll out um, and this blooming lockdowns put a pause Ugh. on it. But if that's the worst thing that happens to me this year, I, you know, I, I, I can work with that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've got a lot of books in the pipeline. It's just it's just a question of um, being able to get them out there, really. I can't say, <laughs> I can't say anything else, but, um, oh... Let, let's hope that science gets its gets its ass in gear. You know, it's. I mean, it's beyond my understanding, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's halting everything. Everything's getting postponed. I mean, at first it was like gatherings and live events getting postponed, but then you know, book releases and album releases and movie releases and everything's getting pushed back. And you you don't really think about the. Uh, the behind the scenes, you know, when, when I when you hear about a, a book or an album, like why would they? Re- postpone that and then you realize well there's materials that need to be produced and production and manufacturing and all that and all everything's shut down so that that mm-hmm. explains the delays um yeah yeah i've always done lots of writing but the uh, the process that that a, a manuscript goes through to to make it to publication is it's almost like um like a conveyor belt for making a ready meal like that there's, <laughs> there's so many like processes that it goes through um yeah it's pretty trippy yeah, I think it shined shine a lot of light on on how everything gets to us, whether it's um, mm-hmm. entertainment or food or supplies or whatever. Everything everything goes through a process, and I guess it's good that it's educating people on where that stuff comes from. It's not just somebody, you know, sitting in their house and typing up a book, and then boom, you have it the next day. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I wish a lot of people would be so prolific. <laughs> that, that is how it works. Do you want to write a book, though? Don't tell me your ideas, because I've I've got loads more ideas coming out, and, and we don't want people to go, oh, you guys have just nicked each other's ideas. But would you, if you could? Uh, I don't know, John. What do you think? I feel like you could, um, because uh, I've always given you a lot of credit. You're you're 
more more well read than I am. Um, I feel like you could even when we were younger. I mean, you uh, you were writing like uh, fiction and stuff like that. So I, I think you have it in you for sure. I would love to write a book on and and as you've proven with this book and um, through my other research, there's definitely other uh, untapped uh, avenues and, uh, uh, and and biographies that could be written. Um, it's just kind of like, you know, where do you start? Yeah, I think as a community of people who are very interested in this stuff, I think it's so vital to, you know, preserve legacies and get this stuff in writing. And I do think that it's very plausible that another book could be written on Cozy Powell that's beyond my um, understanding of the subject, if you will. I mean, his experience with racing, um, that mm -hmm. could be a book if there's anyone out there in the know. Um, in terms of what he was like as a person, I mean, it's, it's not territory that I would be comfortable to write, even if I knew somebody. Um, I'm, I, I kind of value people's privacy and I've kind of approached my book from that angle. But if anybody wants to write a book about what it was like to, I don't know, go to the shops with a guy or go to the pub with a guy, they should write that because there will be people who want to read it, you know. Yeah, of course. And I mean, I can't mm -hmm. think of um, many people who would be interested in our show that wouldn't be interested in reading this book because it's it covers so many of the bases that we're constantly talking about and the stuff that's people that that check out our show are interested in so um you should definitely if you're listening go get this book you will be very happy with it um thank you i've not held it myself um, um it's, oh. <laughs> it's quite it's quite a chunky book but i've been very deliberate i've said i've said to the publisher i said don't show it me yet because i don't want to go oh mission accomplished now i'll stop writing <laughs> i don't want to do that so, so I thought if I don't see it, it, for me as a writer, it maintains that kind of mystery of like, oh, well, I've still not held one of my own books. And, and then, you know, it kind of keeps the ego in check. You, you kind of live for the content rather than, oh, yeah, mate, I've got a book on my shelf. <laughs> so I didn't actually know uh, what it, <laughs> how thick it looked until, until you put it up on camera. That's good. Good, good thickness right there. Um, so if uh, anyone wants to keep track of you and your work, was there anywhere they should go? Any social media any any what should they do oh, to keep bless you. do you know i've <laughs> i've not succeeded to do that side of it yet because i'm actually quite shy i need to get around to it when i've got more books coming out um because because i write in other genres as well um but i haven't actually done anything to promote myself because <laughs> i'm i'm so into the subject matter i'm kind of like leave me alone everybody <laughs> just read the book <laughs> but no you're right i should i should do something to kind of like say you know hey everybody well we'll we'll continue to promote your books for you um and if you do uh you know you're probably better off <laughs> staying off of social media but um for it's uh you know i was largely off of social media till we started the show and i was like well i guess we should probably promote the show a little bit <laughs> um uh, and then that's, that's kind of sucked me back in but um yeah we'll, we'll we'll we will continue to keep our uh listeners uh, abreast of any new developments and we're very much looking forward to the tommy bolin book when it comes out Thank you. I'm buzzing for it. You know, let, let's hope everything gets groovy again. Yes, <laughs> very much so. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been fun. Thank you. All right. So that was great having Laura on the show. Um, really, uh, it's been a pleasure being able to have guests on uh, now. It's definitely changing things up. And um, uh, yeah, like like we said in the interview, great book. 
uh, definitely check it out and really uh, looking forward to hopefully having Laura back on when she comes out with a Tommy Bolin book. Because if it's anything of the quality of this Cozy Powell book, it's going to be really awesome to to get our hands on that. Yeah, that's uh, that was that's pretty exciting that she's going to be doing a Tommy Bolin book. So, yeah. And I mean, just with the with the Powell book, it's so well researched and so many great quotes from Every, cozy and everyone that worked with cozy and it's it's um looking forward to seeing the same thing about tommy bolin and admittedly i probably know a little bit more about tommy bolin than cozy powell but i know there's just gonna be tons in there and, and quotes that i had never heard and stories that i wasn't familiar with so i'm really uh, really excited to to get into that in a future episode well if it's if it's anything like the way she described this book i really liked how she talked about her approach to not interviewing anybody um, after the fact, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. just, to, 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 you know, in, in fairness and to kind of preserve that, um, letting, you know, essentially letting the artist speak for themselves through, uh, quotes and everything like that, uh, just kind of, you know, piecing it, uh, their history together that way, um, which I never really thought about, um, which I thought was a really kind of cool take on it. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody that's passed and you're writing a book on them, you can go one or two routes. And I like that, you know, she kind of went that route. It was really interesting. It was something I never thought of from like a writing standpoint. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, until next week, my friend, I will talk to you later. All right. See you later. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. Oh, okay. If I press the leave button, that means I leave. (laughs) (laughs) Bloody hell.